This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 96. Hi, I'm Taylor Pearson, author of The End of Jobs, Money, Meaning, and Freedom Without the 9 to 5. If that resonates with you, then so will this. It's the Read to Lead podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. In the interview process, if we're feeling like this isn't a fit and here are the reasons, we don't walk out of the room saying that to ourselves or the other manager we're hiring with. We say it to the candidate. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever-important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. Hi, and welcome to the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where each week we sit down with a successful and inspiring business book or nonfiction author, and we chat about their latest book and their expertise in areas like leadership, personal development, career, productivity, marketing, business, and entrepreneurship. Now, last week, uh, we talked about a book called The End of Jobs. And, and this week, we're kind of going to the other extreme. It's all about hiring the right people. In today's episode, you and I are going to be joined by Jim Roddy. He's the author of Hire Like You Just Beat Cancer. More on what that title means in a moment. Hiring lessons, interview best practices, and recruiting strategies for managers from a cancer-surviving executive. I plan to ask Jim about what cancer taught him about the importance of hiring great people, the four main areas we need to evaluate effectively to determine if a candidate is a match for our company, why the mantra, when in doubt, schedule another interview is the right one, and plenty more. For the last couple of weeks, I have been making use of a stand-up desk. I've been reading more than my share of articles about how sitting down for hours at a time is killing us, and I want to do something about that, and I want to help you do something about that. So I'm trying out a stand-up desk, in fact, a motorized stand-up desk from a company called Updesk, and I'm absolutely loving it. And I get to try it out for two more weeks, and then I have to give it back or buy it. And I'm really heavily leaning toward the buy it option, (laughs) if I can convince my wife to let me spend the money, that is. Uh, It's fantastic. It's motorized, as I mentioned. There are presets that will memorize your sitting position and your standing position, and even a third preset for, you know, if another person is using it. There's a digital readout that shows, you know, what height the desk is at at any given moment. I think my standing height for the desk is, I think, 44 inches or something like that. So you see that digital readout. There's even an Updesk app for Android and for iPhone that you can set to remind you, okay, it's time to stand up now for, you know, 30 minutes or an hour or whatever. And then it'll remind you again, okay, it's time to sit down now for, for an hour and a half or whatever it is. And those two work really great in tandem. I'm loving this stand-up desk, and I think you should check them out. Uh, go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash desk. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash desk. I'm currently using what's known as their power-up desk, their most popular model, but they have several from which to choose. I encourage you to check them out. Read to Lead is also supported in part by SoFi. They are a leading marketplace lender. You can save thousands when you refinance your federal and private student loans at lower rates 
with SoFi. And as a Read to Lead listener, they have a special $200 welcome bonus you can take advantage of when you refinance your student loans. Go to SOFI.com slash Read to Lead. Accelerate your success with a smarter loan. Well, since 1999, Jim Roddy has educated business leaders through national magazine articles, online columns, webinars, podcasts, video interviews, and presentations at national conferences. Jim joined Jameson Publishing in 1998 as the managing editor for Business Solutions Magazine. He was elevated to operations manager in 2002 and then to president and general manager in 2006. Jim is also the author of the recent book we mentioned a moment ago, Hire Like You Just Beat Cancer, Hiring Lessons, Interview Best Practices, and Recruiting Strategies for Managers from a Cancer Surviving Executive. Probably worth mentioning that Jim is now about 13 years removed from his colon cancer diagnosis and has a clean bill of health, and we are certainly happy about that. Jim, it's a pleasure to have you on. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Uh, Jeff, great to be here. Thank you very much. Well, to me, the the first obvious question, you being a cancer survivor, uh, what did beating cancer teach you about the importance of hiring great people? What's, What's the connection here? Uh, well, the connection is when I was a young manager, um, every young manager thinks they understand the importance of hiring top-notch people. You know, you have kind of that lip service to it. Oh, yes, it's very important. Everything is in your people. You can't do it without the people. But I still jumped into a lot of uh, the work that my people, my coworkers were doing. But then when I was 32, that's when I was diagnosed with cancer. And so when I was forced to step away from my coworkers, even for an extended period of time. And one of the options I was really weighing was I might have to end up stepping away forever. I didn't know if the cancer had spread or not. And it just made me realize that the people you hire truly make or break your business. Um, And so you can't be there uh, to hold their hands. And so you have to make sure that you hire the best possible people. So, you know, the lessons I learned when cancer knocked me down, they just helped me build me up as a hiring manager. Mm. And I just make sure I apply those lessons, you know, really aggressively anytime I interview. If you want to have somebody who can do the uh, the complete job as opposed to only part of it and you'll jump in because you don't know if you're going to be able to uh, to jump in or not. Well, this next question is somewhat adversarial, or it may sound that way. I don't mean it to sound that way because you actually address it in the book. Uh, But what do you say to someone who might say, well, I've never heard of Jameson Publishing. So how great can your hiring practices be? (laughs) No, uh, that's that's a a fair question. I was going to say there's a lot of companies we've heard of that have absolutely awful hiring practices. Just being well-known doesn't mean you're particularly uh, uh, good at hiring. Mm, Good Um, point. So uh, Jameson Publishing is a, uh, you can call them a small, or medium-sized uh, company. Uh, we're, uh, we have three offices, locations in all in Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, uh, and then Erie. And so what we've done is, you know, there's a lot of organizations where you end up building this conglomerate, but from a culture standpoint, it's not the place that people really want to go to work. It's people who are coming mm-hmm. in and filling a small role. They're not really being uh, inspired uh, to work. And so we've always believed in small, independent uh, operating units. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what we've built our businesses is some of those smaller groups inside of 
those cities, and that's where you can have more of the family atmosphere that really makes people feel like they play a big role and they're uh, a part of doing something. So is my hiring book going to have lessons that apply to you know, every single aspect of a Fortune you know, 100 company? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not. A lot of the principles are the same, but the book was intended for the small to medium businesses that are looking to grow but to grow and still maintain uh, that culture that they really grew up on and, and that drew the people to their mm-hmm. organization. Well, in uh, Chapter 2, Jim introduces the idea of what he calls hiring for bench strength and not just the uh, job at hand. Jim, what does hiring for bench strength mean exactly? Uh, so if you're thinking about from a, uh, a basketball team, let's use that um, as an example. Mm. So a basketball team can't just have its starters. Uh, it has to be able to rely on uh, the bench. And so when you're hiring, you can't just hire to fill that one position and to have a little to pigeonhole people. You need to be able to have people who can come on board your team and expand and backfill for your superstars. Um, and so that's something that we've really strived for is hire somebody, not just that job at hand, but somebody who can grow into a higher level job. So for example, in our organization, we hire salespeople. Well, we don't just want to hire somebody whose ceiling is only going to be a salesperson. You have to have some significant percent of your hires have to be able to grow into a senior salesman, a senior salesperson, or a sales mentor, or a manager, or a publisher in our uh, type of business. And so that to me is very important. If you end up hiring a team of folks who can't grow beyond and they only have a limited ceiling, you're going to be very frustrated frustrated as a leader, a manager, because you're going to have to jump in and do the, the higher level things for them. So you're better off hiring people who have a way higher ceiling and they can replace some of your superstars. They can replace you. Not that you have to leave the business, but you can concentrate on, uh, on bigger and better things. Uh, Jim, what are the four main areas that we need to evaluate effectively to determine if a candidate is a good match for our company? Uh, good question. A lot of people stop at just two. They only hire for skills and they hire for personality. So you can imagine they, for skills, they look at the resume, the person has a lot of experience in the area that they're hiring for, so they bring them in for an interview. And then I always say, they talk to them for an hour, maybe two hours, the person doesn't offend them, the candidate doesn't take a swing at them, and so, hey, seems like, you know, we hit it off, we like the same sports teams, we, you know, know some of the same people, and they say, boy, this looks like a fit. But you have to go to the four areas. It's skills, personality, character, and mapping. And so it has to be four out of four, not one out of four, not two out of four, not three out of four. The Mm. candidate has to be a fit for your organization in all four areas, uh, or it's going to be a short and frustrating (laughs) uh, tenure for that person. Mm. Well, share if you would about this distinction that you make between learning as an interviewer what's in a person versus what the person has done in the past. Got it. And a lot of times you can learn both uh, at the same time, where it's not just the experiences, but uh-huh. it's how they've uh, crossed those and how that's really uh, come to, to shape them. And so when we talk about what's learning, uh, what learning about in a person, we talk specifically about character traits. So don't just learn, if say, example, for a, a salesperson, how much they've sold, how much they've closed, sales cycles. I mean, those are all important but that's not the end of the story. So you have to find out uh, how they are from a character standpoint. And character doesn't doesn't mean honesty. Some of the ones we talk about are prudence, 
So, I mean, who in the business world talks about prudence anymore? You know, it sounds like a word from the 1800s, but, you know, it, it means they don't make reckless choices. They keep things in perspective. And so does, is the person ruled by emotion? Do they make emotional decisions? Do they react emotionally? Do they overreact? Um, uh, or are they somebody who lines up the facts, gets organized, makes a linear decision, you know, and, and weighs all the factors? Another thing with prudence is when we do background checks, you find out that somebody have multiple DUIs. And so that would tell you somebody who clearly repeatedly makes reckless choices. And so when you're hiring somebody, you're not just hiring their skills, you're hiring the entire uh, person. Um, another character trait that we talk about a lot is fortitude. And that's doing the hard thing and bearing pain with a pleasant disposition. And so, you know, you can think about, uh, do they have fortitude with their coworkers? Have they had fortitude with customers? Have they had fortitude with suppliers? Or do they have a history of when things get tough, they just shut up or they back down? Um, and so you, like as I'm t describing this right now, folks who are listening to this can probably think of some of their uh, least best performers. Uh, I don't want to say poor performers, but, uh, you know, put them in that category. And a lot of times it's not based in the skills. It's based in they're too emotional or they didn't speak up or a lot of those things. So that's what we talk about. You need to spend a significant amount of time talking that with that person about their experiences, what they did, why they did it, what their decision-making process was. That's how you're going to learn what's in the person and how they're going to apply that to their work and their life uh, going forward. Well, Jim says we need to uncover uh, what he calls a pattern of recurring behaviors by conducting a behavior-focused interview. And this is the first time I, I have really been exposed to this, Jim. What are what are some of your methods for uncovering these recurring behaviors? I guess before I get into the exact methods, the questions a lot of folks ask during interviews and a common hiring manager mistake mm. is to ask forward-looking questions. Hey, what would you do if you were in this situation? Well, Jeff, you could ask me right now, what would I do in this situation? I could make anything up, you know, and I could say that I'm the bravest person in the world or the strongest person or the smartest person, but anybody can answer something that's forward-looking. I mean, just look at any politician. I mean, they can say exactly what they're going to do and how great things are going to be, but, you know, it could be an empty promise. And so there's no more common candidate promise than them saying, I'm a going to right? I'm going to be your hardest worker. I'm going to come in early every day. I'm going to work late every day. I'm, you're going to have no problems with me. I'm going to be your best uh, employee. And so again, anybody can say that. So you have to cut through that and find out about what they've actually done. And so some of the techniques we used are open-ended past tense questions. So one example would be, what exactly did you say to him? What exactly did you do when that customer complained uh, about the late uh, product that you delivered to them? Mm. That way you're getting into a specific story. You're not leading them in any uh, direction. And so, again, that's open-ended past tense questions. Also, instead of asking theoretical questions like, how do you handle tough customers? You say, can you give me an example a specific example of how you handled a tough customer and have them share uh, a lot of the details. So again, open-ended questions, not closed-ended yes or no questions, um, and not leading questions either in terms of, well, we like to you know, hire candidates who are committed to working here for 10 years or longer. So tell me, how long would you like to work for an organization? I mean, anybody uh, with a decent IQ is going to say, well, at least 10, like that's <laughs> the answer I have to give back. So this gets it down to a real person to person, let's have an honest, frank conversation, as opposed to the interview game 
um, that a lot of folks think they even need to play. And that's kind of how we frame up every single interview that we do with people is we say, you know, there's like those interview 101 answers. We don't want you to give any of those. We want you to give the honest answer, and we want to see if it's a fit. And so if it's not a fit, it's better for both of us that we don't move forward on this. But if it is a good fit, um, it's great and we can move forward. But that only happens if folks know that it's going to be safe for them to give uh, the frank and honest answer and if you ask those behavior-based questions that, that are you know, based on their past experience. Near my community is the headquarters of a, of a company called the Lampo Group, uh, headed by uh, finance guru and radio personality Dave Ramsey. And the company is well known for its multi-interview process, or at least in this area it certainly is. And Jim is also a big believer in this process. In fact, he says, when in doubt, schedule another interview. But it used to be, when in doubt, throw them out. Jim, what changed exactly? Uh, very good question. Um, I always tell people, don't trust your gut. Get the data. Mm. And before, I would do more hiring based on trusting my gut because everybody thinks their gut is right and they have to go with uh, intuition. And what we learned is, and especially when you're training other hiring managers, if they're just saying, you know, I'm in doubt, I'm not sure, so I'm going to kick them out of the process, <laughs> they probably should have gone in and get more data. Uh, one of the quotes is, conviction comes from clarity. And so if you're unconvinced and you're not convicted whether you should keep the person in or throw them out, it's probably because you don't have clarity uh, based on, and so it doesn't mean you didn't get enough data or the right data. So we manage people's expectations of we're going to try to get a lot of data out on the table and it's not they gave one bad answer so we'll throw them out. We want to find, again, that pattern of past recurring behavior and a lot of data points to see whether it's the right fit um, or not. And I can honestly tell you we have an operations manager now who is wonderful. He's mm -hmm. tremendous. We so he's been here, I think he's moving in on five years now. We interviewed him 10 years ago and we use the when in doubt, throw him out, and made a mistake and threw him out. And we were very fortunate that uh, uh, we were able to reconnect with him and bring him back on board. So it really comes down to to hire somebody, you better have a lot of strong, compelling, convincing data. And to throw somebody out of your process, you better have mm. a lot of strong, convincing, uh, compelling data in order to do that as well. Because if you swing and miss on somebody who could really transcend your organization, that could cost your organization millions of dollars uh, realistically, mm. and uh, it could really harm your culture as well, as well, whether you shortcut it and bring on the wrong person, but conversely, if you miss out on, on a potential great hire. One thing I found fascinating was this, this idea of the importance of emotional outcomes. I've never really thought about it quite like that. Why do we want every candidate, Jim, to feel certain emotional outcomes? Got it. That's a very good question. So uh, emotional outcomes, I guess, are one aspect of it. Then there's business outcomes. So your business outcome is you're going in to find out, should I hire this person? Are they the right fit for my organization? But if you only focus on that, you can end up making the candidate feel bad about your organization, and they will go and tell somebody else, and they'll tell somebody else, and you'll end up drying up your pool of candidates and getting a bad uh, reputation mm -hmm. in uh, your industry, in your town, in your market. So we make sure that even if a candidate you find out in the first 15 minutes that there's no way in the world that they're not a fit, you don't just stack up your papers and say, beat it, you're not a fit, get out of here. 
You have to make sure that they feel like they were heard. You have to make sure that they uh, had the opportunity to get all their data out on the table. And so, again, even if 15 minutes in you're thinking there's no way this is going to be a fit, give the person another 15 minutes. Give them another half hour to give more data for you and maybe turn the thing around so somebody at least feels heard and they had all their questions answered and they feel like you were a professional company and weren't just trying to uh, rush them out the door. So, you know, a lot of times people think, ooh, it's a candidate, but it's a person. It's someone who could be uh, an advocate for your organization or they can talk badly about it. Hmm. And one of the stories I like to tell is uh, we went through somebody in the interview process and had a frank conversation with them that it wasn't a fit. Well, they're introducing somebody they went to high school with. Oh, you work at Jameson Publishing? Oh, my gosh, I didn't get hired, but they treated me so well, and we had such a good conversation, and they felt they were treated professionally. So mm. that's how we see it as, you know, we have candidates, even if we don't hire them, they're going to be ambassadors, and they're either going to be an ambassador for your brand or against your brand, and so you have to make sure you think of that uh, as you're going through your interview process. You're not just trying to get the business outcome of not a fit, throw them out. You've got to make sure that uh, you treated them like a guest and they felt good and, and they still uh, have a high opinion of your company and that they understand why it didn't work out. Mm. Well, one example I found of a company treating people really, really well is the company uh, SoFi. When I was researching them and considering them as, as a sponsor for the podcast, I found nothing but good things about them. And, and that's one of the reasons why I share about them with with you here the last few weeks on the show. They are a leading marketplace lender and they offer student loan refinancing, mortgages, and personal loans for busy professionals, ambitious people just like you. Now, if you're carrying high student loan balances, why? You could save thousands by refinancing and consolidating your federal and private student loans at a lower rate. And SoFi borrowers save on average of about $14,000 over the life of their loan. Now, in addition to that, SoFi members benefit from unemployment protection. So if you should lose your job, they pause your payment and provide access to a career services team for personalized career planning, job search assistance as well. Check out a full list of products and benefits by visiting sofi.com slash read to lead. Now, here's the best part. For a limited time and as a listener to this show, you're eligible for a $200 welcome bonus when you refinance your student loans with SoFi. Again, that address, sofi.com slash read to lead. All loans, by the way, made by SoFi Lending Corps, NMLS number 1121636, and CFL license number 6054612. We've had uh, guests on in the past who've, who've come on to talk specifically about methods for creating side income or launching a side hustle in the margins of your life, all while working for, for somebody else. But in the chapter on hiring rules of thumb, Jim says, quote, don't hire candidates who, while working for your company, would own, operate, manage, or assist with a sideline business. And I understand uh, the reasons for that. They are many, and, and you can certainly expound on those if you want to, Jim. But what about existing employees? Do you have policies in place that prohibit current employees from, from launching a side business? Uh, so to a degree, yes, we do. So the one thing about a rule of thumb, we call it, it's a, it's a principle whose broad application is not intended to be strictly accurate or reliable. Mm. And so you need to dive in and find out the specifics, but it's usually a good place to start. So you don't let your emotions blind you of, no, here's why I'm sure it's going to work out. <laughs> you have to start off with, no, a sideline business will be a distraction to a 
the full-time employee that you're trying to hire. You might wish it wasn't true, but in for the most part, it happens that it ends up being some level of a distraction. So for our current employees, what we have is we have a, uh, a conversation. It's a form, but it really goes into all the questions, and it's work outside the company. Mm. And that's where we have a detailed discussion in terms of how many hours a week is this going to be? Uh, is it going to infringe upon the regular workday? How are you going to handle phone calls? How are you going to handle you know, other correspondence? And so I just think of in, in one of our groups, we have somebody uh, who's a landlord, and we hired him, and he had some of those apartments off to the side. And so we just asked specifically about how does he handle the calls, what does he have in case of an emergency, and he had everything all set up that it didn't all go through him. Mm. He was a landlord, but he had somebody else servicing it, and it came down to, well, we can see how this won't affect the business, but we do a concept uh, that I talk about in the book called Set Them Up for Future Reference, and the acronym is SUF with R on the end, so set them up for future reference. And we say, if this does become a problem with your full-time job, we reserve the right to say, this isn't working out, you're going to have to choose one or the other. And so mm-hmm. that candidate, because we had the conversation up front and he was able to execute on it, nobody would ever know um, that he's uh, a landlord. And so we have a really frank conversation uh, with current employees and we do in the interview process. And if it can't work out, it's better that we find out now and the person comes on board and is frustrated and is, is forced to choose. So mm. we just have that really honest conversation. We're not trying to f- fool anybody or hope that this is going to work out. We really go through an exact plan. Um, we have uh, somebody who's been with us a little over a year now. She's our events and marketing manager and she's been wonderful. And uh, she is a uh, part-time college golf coach. So we actually had her put together her schedule and show when, you know, the the matches are, did she have to go to practice, what days would that cause her to miss, and we mapped everything out and how's that tie in with her vacation time. So we got very, very specific, Mm. and that's, I think, where it really comes down to is we talk about this broad hiring rule of thumb, but it's once you dig down into the specifics, that's when you're going to know if you're making – the right decision or not, and typically it doesn't become adversarial because reasonable people with the same amount of information tend to make the right uh, and the same uh, decisions, and that's, again, how we work uh, as employees and and through our interview process as well. Really comes down to clear communication, right? I get clear, honest communication and nobody leaving the room saying, "Eh, I'm really not quite sure. And so (laughs) in the interview process, if we're seeing, I'm feeling like this isn't a fit or this doesn't seem to be a fit and here are the reasons, we don't walk out of the room saying that to ourselves or the other manager we're hiring with. We say it to the candidate and it gives them the opportunity to say, no, here's other data Mm. that I can give you to overcome it. Or they say, you know what, you're right. And so they know why uh, it wasn't a fit. Yeah, so clear communication and frank communication on both ends. There's, I guess, another thing of you have to set up a safe environment. If you have an interview process that is more of an interrogation as opposed to a business conversation and people understand we're looking for the right fit for ourselves and the right fit for you because we don't want you to have a career that's going to be frustrating for you or a culture that doesn't work for you, then I think uh, we've seen that that makes people feel very safe because they know we're on their side as well. We do not want to bring somebody into an organization who is not going to like uh, our culture. You feel safe now, right, Jim? 
Uh, yes, talking to you, yes. <laughs> you don't feel like I'm interrogating you or anything? <laughs> no, by no means, no. Okay, good, good. <laughs> You're doing it right. <laughs> well, another rule of thumb uh, that caught my attention, remember it is a rule of thumb, so it's open for some interpretation, was uh, don't offer jobs to candidates who have more than a 45-minute commute to your facility. Uh, why do you believe that uh, doing otherwise is a bad idea? Yeah, uh, good question. Um, because in the interview process, people will forget about that daily grind. And again, if it's more than 45 minutes, you're talking about an hour and a half of their uh, life that they have to, you know, sacrifice in order to, to take your job. And so what typically happens is there's a high probability um, that it'll wear on the person, but they won't want to leave your, your job. And so they'll say, hey, can we make this work out that either I could come in later or leave earlier or I can do a work-from-home kind of thing? And if that doesn't fit within your uh, culture and your organization, it might not be the right fit uh, for you. And especially on bad weather days, I mentioned to you I'm uh, headquartered in Erie, Pennsylvania, and you know, we're in the top five every year for snow, snowfall. And so 45 minutes in August uh, is way different from your commute in January. And so it can be even longer than that. And so we just know based on history, um, it's not that we don't like people because they live 46 minutes away. We just know it's all about the odds and the probability. And history has shown us people who have longer commutes than that. Uh, eventually, we'll look for a position that is closer to their home so they don't have to uh, go through that grief every day of, mm. of driving that far. Um, again, a lot of this has been mitigated now with that there are a lot of organizations where folks can work from home. Uh, but if you do have an office and you're requiring somebody to come in there five days a week, um, if you hire, I guess I'll put it this way, if you hire 10 people who have a 15-minute commute and you hire 10 people who have a 55-minute commute, Look up five years from now, and the people in the 15-minute commute, there are going to be more of them staying at your company than the people with the longer uh, commute. And if you're trying to build an organization where you need to retain people because they're going to bring all that experience and strength, culture strengthening knowledge to your organization by turning people over on a regular basis, um, that's not going to get it done for you. So this is just one of those things that doesn't show up on the resume, but it's a, it's a real thing in, in business, and hiring managers have to be mindful of it. The book is right at about 160 pages, divided into four parts, and much of, of what we talked about has come out of parts one and two, part one being uh, guiding principles for hiring, part two, decision-making and communication skills. What we haven't really delved into a great deal is part three, uh, actionable information. And then part four goes on to include uh, 258 tremendous uh, interview questions. All that to say, Jim, before I move on to some questions not directly related to the book, is there anything else from the book you'd like to make sure that we know? Uh, I'd say a few things. One, I'm a big fan of uh, critical thinking Mm. um, as opposed to just operating from a recipe. And so step one is there's like six steps to critical thinking. Uh, Step one, uh, fully understand the best practices. Two, fully understand the situation. Then step three, start developing your action plan. And so uh, the book does not say if you ask these 27 questions in succession, Bing on the other end is going to come out the perfect candidate or you're going to find out that, that they're not. So uh, one thing with the book is it hopefully gives you a thinking guideline and it gives you a long list of questions you could ask, but you have to 
really know your company, really know the kind of person that you're aiming for, and really know the culture and how that's going to fit together, and then what you're looking for to fit that role uh, before you develop your questions. So the book can be a resource for you, but it is not a uh, recipe that spells it out, you know, again, those 27 questions mm. that you ask. You really have to be able to uh, turn on your brain and understand those things. The book can give you some guidance in that and some questions. Um, and then the other thing is don't be afraid. You know, just start asking questions. Just spend time with people. You're going to get scars from uh, hiring. There's no perfect hiring managers. I've never talked to anyone who has a, uh, a batting average of 1,000. And so just go in and do your best and, and be willing to, to learn from it. The book is based on uh, – hiring failures that we've made in the past and we just kept trying to get better and writing down and, and, and learning them on. So I'm hoping folks can, can learn from, uh, from our experience. Well, I know that you're an avid uh, reader, Jim. Name for us, if you can, a couple of books that you've read or maybe are even currently reading that have had a huge impact on you and share, if you can, why or how they've impacted you as they have. Uh, good questions. The one I actually just got done reading isn't a business book, but there's a lot that applies to it. It's called Mother Teresa, Her Essential Wisdom, and it's just a collection of quotes from uh, Mother Teresa, and it's just amazing how uh, somebody who was in the position she was when you think um, didn't have all sorts of degrees after her name, but it was just this life experience and what she learned from it and just extreme humility. That's something that really came out of that in terms of uh, the value of humility. And just when you think you're humble, you could be a little bit more humbled um, and, and really learn from it. So that's the one that I just got done reading. Um, I'm very fortunate that I'm involved in an organization called the Retail Solutions Providers Association, the RSPA, and they just had at their uh, summer conference Michael Gerber, uh, mm. from the author of the uh, the EMF. Yeah. And so I was thrilled I got to spend a half hour interviewing him, uh, not as well as you do interviews, uh, <laughs> Jeff, but interviewing him about some of the principles um, and how they applied and then got to uh, spend a couple hours with him at the conference that they had over the mm. summer and him just talking about, you know, people should be and can be creative and you really have to free yourself up in order to to be creative and you have to have systems in your business to make sure that you're not just grinding every day and trying to keep all those plates spinning and it really does tie in and that's why when I talked to him I said I was so glad to hear it because higher like you just beat cancer is a system and if you install that system and know how to kind of work that machine properly you can, like some of the anecdotes I gave you, you can hire people who are going to be great and stay around for a long time, and you can move on to bigger and, and better things. So Michael Gerber's The E-Myth is great, and also through that RSPA, uh, they have Chip and Dan Heath. Their book, Decisive, is fantastic uh, from a decision-making uh, standpoint. I was just talking to some small business executives this afternoon and grabbed Decisive off my bookshelf to share some of the decision-making process. Um, with them. And so I actually told Chip, I'm telling people, read Decisive and then also read Higher Like Just Beat Cancer because his book talks about the entire backdrop of, of good decision-making in business uh, and in life. So those are two, um, and, and the Mother Teresa book that, uh, that just really stick out to me as I'm you know, uh, looking here at my bookshelf. Well, if you were to distill, Jim, all you've learned about leadership – uh, down to a central theme or a single concept, what what advice would you give? Um, if I had to choose one, feel free to laugh at this if you like. <laughs> um, 
it's a concept I remember somebody saying about the donut hole, like how smart the donut hole is, because they know they're really nothing, but if they surround themselves with something great, everybody's going to uh, love them. And so <laughs> I think that really applies in business, in leadership, and, and really in life where don't think about how great you are. Uh, think about you can do great things by building a team and by helping them be all that they can be. And so then your team's going to win. Your team's going to celebrate. They're going to feel good. Your customers uh, are going to love working with you. And that, to me, is kind of the, the visual that I always have. I think of that donut hole. It's A lot of times people think about how can I promote myself? How can I race up the, uh, the corporate ladder? That, to me, is not satisfying, not fulfilling. It ends up pitting people one against another because there's only – you know, so much room on the ladder. And so, you know, become a part of a, a great team, build a great team inside of your organization or, or starting your own organization. Um, so I guess to that donut hole, it, it kind of comes off as a silly one, but it's just a visual that I've always mm-hmm. had um, where you are nothing without uh, those people who surround you. Well, I'd be curious to know, uh, Jim, what's next uh, for you and maybe uh, Jameson Publishing? What, what are you and your team working on now that, that you're excited about, if you can share? I am working on uh, gathering data on a book about underdogs who have succeeded. Hmm. Um, and everybody's familiar with, I think everybody, or a lot of people are familiar with the story of Rudy from Notre Dame, oh, and yeah. the movie Rudy, and about him. And uh, so Rudy got a lot of play, and people love that story. And so uh, a book that I read that is about uh, walk-ons. And so a walk-on is uh, somebody who uh, plays for a college team, but they don't have a scholarship. And so somebody had given that book to me because I know what an avid uh, reader that I am. And so I read through that book, and they had three really good examples of uh, walk-ons who then really ended up earning a scholarship and became very good athletes. Well, I've known a lot of walk-on uh, athletes who have gone on to great success in business or teaching or medicine. And mm-hmm. so I'm doing this, you know, uh, information outreach and trying to come across some good stories of folks who were walk-ons in college and then how did that teach them and what did they learn from that experience that really propelled them to uh, professional success. And part of it is a personal story. I was a walk-on Division II basketball player at Gannon University, Mm. and so I learned a lot from there that I actually apply to, to business today. And so I'm really bumping into some excellent stories so far. Um, and so that book is in very much in the early stages, but uh, with the handful of stories I've received already, I'm enjoying them a lot, and I think there are going to be a lot of lessons that, that anybody can learn from it. It's not that they were just geniuses. Um, it's about these folks who uh, really just worked hard and persevered and ran into a lot of challenges and were told no a lot, uh, but kept on persevering. So I'm trying to gather as many um, you know, data points on that as we can. And the book that I alluded to is called The Wisdom of Walk-Ons, uh, written mm. by Paul Corona. Uh, he is a uh, uh, Dr. Paul Corona at uh, Northwestern University. So mm. um, that was a good book. And like I said, I'm kind of taking his uh, and extrapolating it to the, uh, the professional and the business world. 
Well, Jim's book, again, is called Hire Like You Just Beat Cancer. Last name Roddy, R-O-D-D-Y. We'll, of course, link to it, as we always do in the show notes. And I encourage you to check it out, especially if you're in charge of any part of the hiring process at your company. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for uh, spending time with us. Uh, I learned a lot from uh, this book and uh, so much, too, that I can pass on to to my coaching clients. I'm not in that place where I'm you know, hiring people, per se, but uh, as I coach people. There's a lot that I can extrapolate uh, from this book and use in that arena. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be a guest. And I came up with the old commercial was, but I can, to paraphrase, I'm not only a guest, I'm a listener and uh, <laughs> I enjoy uh, uh, listening to your uh, Read the Lead podcast. So thank you very much. Like I said, I'm, I'm honored to be uh, among the list of uh, authors who've been on your program. So thank you and keep up the good work. I've included links to Jim's Twitter profile and his LinkedIn profile in the show notes page for today's episode. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash zero nine six for episode 96. If you're on your mobile device and want to connect with him on Twitter right now, he's at Jim underscore Roddy, R-O-D-D-Y on Twitter. That's at Jim underscore Roddy, R-O-D-D-Y. Again, everything you'd like to know about Jim, his new book, the resources we discussed, find all of that on the page, especially for this episode. Again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 096. Remember our sponsors, sofi.com slash readtolead, sofi.com slash readtolead, and check out those stand-up motorized desks. Awesome. I love mine. I think you'll love one too. Read to lead podcast.com slash desk. And finally, if this episode has helped you in some way or a past episode has been impactful on your life and on that of your business, I would appreciate very much your considering a rating and review in iTunes or on Stitcher. To give it a five-star rating and leave a written review so I know who you are, I'll mention you by name in an upcoming episode. It's a small way to say thanks. Read to lead podcast.com slash iTunes to go there or read to lead podcast.com slash Stitcher to leave a rating there. Looking to get healthier? Then check out my friend Drew Tadia's podcast, exploringmindandbody.com. Well, that's going to do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.